Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is John Kabat-Zinn. John Kabat-Zinn is Professor of Medicine Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, where he founded its world-renowned MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Clinic, in 1979, and also the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society in 1995. John's also the author of a series of research papers on MBSR that date back all the way to 1982. To put it plainly, John Kabat-Zinn has been hugely influential in introducing the practice of mindfulness to medicine and also broadly to millions of people worldwide. He's the author of 15 books, currently in print in over 45 languages, including a new book with Sounds True. It's called Mindfulness Meditation, for pain relief. John, welcome. Thanks, Tammy. It's just wonderful to be here with you and with everybody else. Okay, John, to start, chronic pain is a huge problem for so many people worldwide, for so many of us. In America alone, I read this statistic in preparing for our conversation. 20% of the population, 50 million people, report suffering from chronic pain. And I wanted to start to learn more how you view chronic pain. Well, my exposure to chronic pain came when I started the stress reduction clinic, the MBSR clinic at uh, the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, as you said, back in 1979. Uh, and the idea was, <clears throat> excuse me, to catch people falling through the cracks of the healthcare system. Uh, back in 1979, now the cracks are chasms. It's like the Grand Canyon of falling through. So to offer them something that they might be able to do for themselves as a complement to whatever medicine could do for them uh, to uh, attenuate or regulate whatever medical condition they had. And uh, 
And then right when I was getting started, the pain clinic at UMass heard about it and said, well, we got lots of people we can send you. So they started sending me all of the people who did not respond to the traditional uh, pain regulation treatments that they were using, like lidocaine injections, spinal injections, all sorts of different kinds of therapies. <clears throat> and so we were getting the people who, as they put it in the medical language, were failures to that, you know, who were like, there's nothing left for them, we'll send them to the stress reduction clinic. And I thought, oh my God, before we even get started, we're going to be dead on arrival because how are we going to be able to handle people who have had no success with pain regulation uh, with the medical treatments? And what I found out was that they became uh, my teachers uh, and demonstrated that these meditative practices that are thousands of years old and they really have to do with suffering in all its different forms, emotional as well as physical, social as well as physical and emotional, but that in particular, people who are suffering with chronic pain conditions, which are defined as a, a pain condition of more than six months duration, anywhere in the body. Um, but that could include emotional pain as well. And what they would say after the eight weeks of training and fairly rigorous for the time, mindfulness meditation practices, including mindful Hatha yoga, by the way, so some degrees of movement and flexibility and balance and strength building, they were saying things like, you've done more for me in eight weeks than my medical team has done for me in eight years. And I was just staggered to even hear that and said, well, I'm so happy for you, but there's one correction I need to add. And that is that I didn't do it for you. You did it yourself. So these practices based on these ancient meditative uh, uh, ways of learning how to be in the body and to be in one's own heart and mind in ways that minimize suffering are um, were, have been demonstrated over the years to be totally appropriate for people living in the you know the the time that we're living in now and so yes there was a lot of research that we did in the early days and now there's even more but i was staggered to say if i could go on just a little bit with this this uh line of thing that that last week i think it was a paper came out in the premier scientific journal of them all nature the title of which is Chronic Pain, The Long Road to Discovery, written by uh, a woman named Lucy Odling Smee, who it turns out uh, sat a meditation retreat that my son Will and I led a number of years ago at Omega. And in reading this uh, article, uh, what I discovered is that almost nothing's changed since 1979 in terms of treatments for the people who have chronic pain. Yes, they've done a lot of neuroscience on pain and stuff like that, but basically people are still left to their own devices or the usual kind of chemical attempts to regulate things or surgeries for back pain or other kinds of pain that very often I would see people who had three or four failed back surgeries and then now what am I supposed to be doing? And people actually found ways to live with 
the actuality of what they were experiencing and to live relatively well. So that was um, a real eye-opener for me and really affirmed that we were on the right track in terms of bringing these ancient meditative practices into the mainstream of academic and, uh, you know, sort of high-level uh, modern medicine. Can you help our listeners understand, John, how I could use mindfulness meditation to help me with chronic pain? Let's just take back pain because yeah. it's and so common. And let me common. just say that uh, yeah. uh, knowing this was coming up, I actually sat down and read large sections of this new book that we just came out with. And I have to say, it's exactly what I most hope it would be. It's meant to be so user-friendly that it's almost not a book. It's more like a friend. And of course, there are guided audios, meditation practices. But this is the first time in my life ever in a book that I've put the text of the guided meditations into the book itself. So you could actually listen through your ears, but actually also read along or separately the text of them. And it's designed in such a way with the imagery in the book and so forth to actually uh, be a, an ex offer an experience of momentary solace all by itself when you're really confronting the the rending dimensions of pain where you just don't know what to do anymore and either the drugs don't work or there's you know you've tried everything well the one thing you probably haven't tried is to turn towards and befriend what you most want to be liberated from and get away from and that's what the entire book is about so to come back to what you were suggesting what mindfulness is really about when all is said and done is learning how to inhabit a superpower. I've come to think of it in these terms, um, riffing on or following on the example of Greta Thunberg, who speaks about her autism as a superpower. Uh, I think what the Buddha was teaching was that human awareness is really uh, an incredibly powerful gift that everybody already has. So it's not something you have to get or the misunderstanding of meditation is you have to become a good meditator. You have to strive to keep your mind still and balanced and penetrative in terms of uh, insight and focus and, and try to be a good meditator. But that's not what it's about at all. It's about learning how to inhabit this functionality that we already have, which is called human awareness and to sustain that inhabiting of it. Uh, and then it transforms your relationship to everything, including pain and suffering. So you can experiment with this a lot, but to bring it down to the sort of nitty gritty uh, in terms of your question, the first place to start usually in any meditative tradition is you start with the body. In the Buddhist tradition it's called, the, as you know, I mean, the first, the foundation of mindfulness, the body. And every, everybody has a body, you know. We've never found anybody who doesn't have a body. Uh, and the people that we get come to the hospital or to MBSR because of pain. So the body is not the way I want it to be. And of course, all we want is for someone to come in and cut it out or fix it or just make it go away. And when you find out that that's not going to be uh, too likely, 
then you're <clears throat> thrown back on your own devices. And what mindfulness will say is, okay, well, let's just start from scratch. How is it in the body right in this moment? And how do you even know? Well, the only way you know is by attending to the body, by actually paying attention to my elbows killing me or my shoulders killing me or my jaws killing me. But actually, when you start attending, you realize those actually aren't sensations. Those are thoughts. And a lot of them are emotionally freighted thoughts, like I can't stand this, it's going to ruin my entire life. And that amplifies the experience of pain and suffering. So if you develop a kind of constancy in your meditation practice over just even a few days, never mind a few weeks, which is all we're talking about, come to realize that, holy cow, I may be contributing to actually amplifying and exacerbating what I call my pain. And that it's possible to actually turn towards it and, and befriend it, actually, put the welcome mat out for the sensations and learn to inhabit that space of awareness. Like that becomes your apartment or your house or your home. And you dwell in awareness as opposed to in thinking and emotions and, and stress reactivity. And then you can explore what it feels like in the only moment you can ever experience anything, which is now. And when people do this, or when I do this, and I'm sure it's true for you as well, or anybody who meditates, you find out there's a whole other dimension of experience that is inhabitable. And that is awareness. It's like, and we all have it. So it's not something you have to get or meditate for 50 years in the Himalayas and then you'll get it. No, you have it. What, what's the barrier? The barrier is um, accessing it because we're so self-distracting. And then now the world, of course, much more than in 1979, is digital, digital Armageddon in terms of distractibility. The, you know, the attention economy or the disattention economy. So um, we're up against a lot, but the message is it is doable. You can thread this needle and everybody will do it their own way. So it's not like you have to fall lockstep into some kind of, you know, uh, weirdo universe, but you're actually befriending yourself and investigating who the hell that is, because it certainly is a lot bigger than the story you tell yourself. No matter, even if you don't have chronic pain, you're probably telling yourself some story that's going to feature many elements of inadequacy or unhappiness or why if this you know wasn't this way, then I'd be, you know, be so much better off. All of which, again, pointing out just thoughts. And most of our thoughts are just completely wrong. I mean, they're just wrong. Uh, and then the emotional uh, stuff that goes along with them also uh, a kind of turbulence of the mind that's unnecessary to get caught up in. Because even if you think of the mind as often spoken about in classical meditation terms, again, as you well know, uh, it's often likened to the ocean. And depending on atmospheric conditions, the mind can wave like crazy, you know, or be absolutely calm. And so we're not forcing it to be calm and we're not uh, arguing when it's waving, just learn how to drop underneath far enough 
So, and it's already here. It's not like you have to go anywhere. The ocean has depth to it. Your mind has depth to it. Your heart has depth to it. And so you can learn to inhabit this space of embodied awareness. And that's the practice. So the more moments you are inhabiting it, the more you're transforming your relationship to the unwanted sensations and all of the cognitive and emotional turbulence that goes along with it. And then, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, they speak about taking refuge. And it's dawned on me not too long ago that, you know, the meditation practice really is literally a refuge. It's a way to step out of very intense winds and weather patterns. And it's not like you're getting rid of the wind or making the wind go away, but you're you're sheltered enough from it so that you're actually okay in this moment. And then I'll say one more thing and then we'll, and that, that thing is that, okay, I'm okay in this moment, but what about the next moment? I mean, the pain's going to come back or I'm going to lose my, you know, concentration or focus or whatever it is. And so, you know, I'm worried about the future, but oh, oh, but let's not forget it's all about the present moment. So if you learn how to really stay in the present moment, your whole life is just one moment. Everything else is a fiction, the past over future hasn't happened yet. And this one moment is so easily missed that you could live your whole life. And then right at the end, as Thoreau famously said, you know, just before you drop into your grave, realize, Oh my God, I got the whole thing wrong. I got carried away with all this energy and all this stuff about I, me and mine and my failures and my success and my pain and my suffering and who's to blame and what went wrong. And then how unnecessary that was. And then you die. So in a certain way, these meditative practices are very rigorously inviting us to Die now, get it over with, die to that aspect of the mind that's so self-centered that it actually creates too small a narrative for who you are, then identifies you as a chronic pain patient or as a heart patient or as, you know, a cancer patient when you're infinitely more than that. And so letting go of the stories becomes a very big part of letting go of the pain and the suffering. All right. Now I want to talk to that person who has an experience of something or other in their lower back, the side, that maybe we're not even going to call it P-A-I-N. We're not even going to use that word. Right. But it's something, maybe it feels sharp or bloated or burning or red or something. They're trying to describe it at right. a sensation level. Now, how does becoming aware of this, however the person might describe the sensations in the most raw presentational form, how does that help, actually? Well, uh, it's turning towards, it's a wonderful question, it's turning towards what you most want to cut out or run away from. <clears throat> and when you do it, um, you can actually put the welcome mat out, as I said, for the sensations themselves. And maybe you only do it for like five seconds, like putting your toe in the water. Can I take a peek at this thing I'm calling my pain and just feel what it really feels like with no barriers and no thinking, just 
what it is. Very often when you actually do that, first of all, you, you're experiencing agency because you're choosing to put your toe in the swimming pool. You're choosing to do that. And, then you can, and you also have autonomy. You can pull it out. But then you could put it back in. And you could see, well, maybe I could stay in for 10 seconds. And you begin to actually uh, befriend the sensory field of what we call pain and then see that it's not exactly the same as suffering, that there's a whole other dimension that we add to it that creates the story of suffering. Now, this is non-trivial, okay? This is asking a lot of people. And so this is something that, hey, if you can take drugs or get surgery to fix your situation with pain, Fantastic. Yes, by all means, have that happen. But if the doctors, as they very often do, wind up saying a certain point, even after multiple surgeries, you know, the fact is, this is something you're, you're now going to have to learn to live with. What I'm describing is the learning itself. And it's a cultivation of a certain kind of intimacy. It's like doing the exact opposite of what we most want to do, which is just run. And this is actually uh, a kind of you can turn what you most don't want into sort of an adventure of like, what is okay in my life? Wh who is doing the uh, attending, for instance? Is if you if you learn how to inhabit the space of awareness, and you're experiencing the sensations, say in your lower back and they're sharp and cutting and, you know, rending or whatever the, the words are that are used to describe it, which are very, very vivid. And then you play with it in an experimental way, the way I was suggesting. It's like, well, right in this moment, how is it? Like, could I go one breath into it? Never mind one breath. What about one in-breath, just the in-breath? And then if like, if I have to, I turn away, run away, get up, stop meditating. But then you say, well, I actually made it through that breath. How about the out breath? And if not one breath, even half an in breath. And in doing that kind of thing, and again, I'm talking in a very sort of abstract way, but we're talking about tens of thousands of people who have been through this kind of program with chronic pain conditions and have discovered that this actually is uh, an enormous help in living life in a way that reclaims some of what's been lost from having that back surgery after a car accident or from a fall or from whatever it is that that the learning to live with it part, not to make it go away or eradicate the experience, but the learning part uh, has a beautiful geography to it and topology to it. And then, of course, nobody wants it, but when you don't have any alternative, then it turns out that it can actually become your ally. And it says that in the book at a certain place, and even your friend, because and a lot of people say this, that you gave my life back to me, as I said. You know, and they say, I didn't give your life back to you. You gave your life back to you by willing, by being willing 
in some sense to try something that on the surface might sound like complete insanity. Now, John, you talk about putting the welcome mat out and also paradoxically you describe how we don't need to bring our mindfulness to these painful sensations with a desire, with an agenda. I want to fix this. I want this to go away. Instead, the welcome mat welcomes. Yeah, you can't, you, you can bring that kind of agenda. I noticed in me, I was like, look, I have that agenda. You know, I Everybody bought the book, does. Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief. I'm looking for relief. I'm doing the these relief. practices. Where's the, where's the, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, if Show there's a the welcome money. mat, I also want to welcome. I don't really want to welcome someone I don't like, but okay. You know, I'd much rather open the door on the welcome mat. But anyway, I want relief and I, I want to. I want to, it now, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the club. That You know what that's called? It's called being human. Of course, we're all that way. We're all that way. But part of the beauty of being human is we, you will, there wouldn't be a sounds true at all if you yourself did not discover at a certain point that the reality is much more interesting than the appearance and has m so many more dimensions to it that can actually be cultivated that can actually be turned towards, that can be befriended in all sorts of different ways. And that asking the question, who am I really? Uh, when I refer to myself or I, me and mine, there's an enormous richness there. There's a gigantic universe there. And it's so much bigger, as I was suggesting, than the narratives we tell ourselves. And that's where the convergence of the sensory dimension of pain the emotional dimension of pain and the cognitive dimension of pain uh, come together. And as I was saying, you can experience as part of your meditation practice that when the mind contracts, when your thoughts kind of focus on me and my pain, it actually amplifies the suffering because you're taking it all personally and you got to blame whoever is to blame for it. And the doctors who weren't able to fix you, but promised that they would or whatever, or you thought they promised that they would, or that it would at least get better. And when all is said and done, there's just you and the way things are. And that's not a life sentence or a tragedy. That's actually the beginning of, you know, to grab the last line of uh, Humphrey Bogart's, you know, movie, the, the beginning of a beautiful friendship you with you, you with yourself. And people may not be drawn to meditation, actually, people are drawn to meditation for a million different reasons. But when you have no place else to go, and you still have this body, and it is not what you want it to be, whatever age you find yourself at, then actually, there aren't that many alternatives except to live a life where you feel completely imprisoned or betrayed by whatever, or that that's not the end of the story. And as long as you're breathing, as we say all the time to our patients, as long as you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you, no matter what's wrong with you. And we see people in MBSR with every conceivable medical diagnosis. And of course, all of us have the ultimate medical diagnosis of uh, you know, a sexually transmitted disease with a terminal prognosis. It's called being alive. 
Yeah. Now, you know, I wanted to ask you this question, John, because you said, as long as you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you, no matter what is wrong. And this is one of the seven principles for working with pain that you write about in Mindfulness yes. Meditation for Pain yes. Relief. And I thought to myself, I could imagine a lot of people hearing that and going, I I'm not so sure. I think there's more wrong with me than right in this you, moment. And you just, you just demonstrated the, my argument because you use the word thinking. You think, of course, everybody thinks there's more wrong at a certain point, you know, when we're yeah. in trouble. Yeah. When we, you know, seriously, we're all going to die, okay? It's not that there's something wrong with us because we're going to die. That's simply the way life is, at least for now. There are people working on the, the whole problem of death, you know, and maybe we will be able to download ourselves to a disc at some point and, and then, you know, sort of be immortalized in one way or another. But in terms of the embodied analog world, first of all, I want to just give a nod to the analog world that if you think about your body or anybody, any of us thinking about our body, okay, how the hell did it get here? You know, we can talk about ancestors and, you know, and we do need to honor our ancestors, but we don't know our ancestors back more than four, five, 10, 15, 20 generations. How far back do you want to go before? It's just millions of years of evolution. Okay. And we're living on this little blue planet that we've been able to get far enough away from to look back and photograph it. And it's just hanging in space. Yeah. Absolute blackness. And there's no place else to go. And we're of course, besmirching the planet in certain ways that are really threatening life. And, and the reason I'm getting cosmic here is to just remind people that every single one of us, just the body, for instance, there are more atoms in the human body than we have numbers to actually name. And there are more cells in the human body than there are galaxies in the universe. So this is an enormous result of 13.8 billion years of cosmic evolution since the Big Bang. And we should honor that, you know, that there, there's nothing wrong with the analog world. And in fact, what we're learning through the meditative practices and the scientific study of meditation is that this brain of ours, for instance, right underneath our skull is the most complex arrangement of matter in the known bios universe. Well, we, we haven't finished the arc of self-discovery of like who we are by any stretch of the imagination. And now with chat uh, GPT and AI and all of that, you know, it may be that the, we're going to favor the digital world, which can give us a lot, but is also really potentially tremendously toxic without fulfilling those for the planet Earth, 3.5, let's say, billion years of human evolution life on this planet. And with the, with the result of it now, maybe we should actually learn how to inhabit the miracle and the full dimensionality of this body, this heart, this mind, this brain. You're the product of this unbelievable mystery <clears throat> where the eyes work, the ears work, the nose works, the mouth works. The spine actually holds you up out of the pelvis. The legs actually keep us erect in the gravity. I mean, it's like a miracle on a million different levels. And my back is killing me. Okay, so I, 
how do we actually hold both of those without diminishing the my back is killing me? Because when my back is killing me, I don't care about evolution or, you know, even the next moment and I, or even eating dinner. But how do you hold all of that in a way that actually could enhance the quality of your life? Because when all is said and done, that's what we're talking about. What's pain relief mean that I have a better quality of life? I'm happier more and less in, you know, suffering. And as again, you well know, and sounds true well knows, these meditative practices, it's almost like this is the moment on planet Earth that they're most needed, not just for individuals with chronic pain, but for governments, for leaders, for the people who are deciding how as humanity, we govern ourselves so that we don't self-destruct, for instance. So it's all the same superpower. And this book is really meant to be um, <clears throat> something that you reach for when you don't know what else to do, that you really don't know what to, else to do. And everything you've tried has failed. Uh, but you're still breathing, you still have a body. Why not turn towards what you most want to just get cut out or run away from or get fixed? And just see what this 3.5 billion years of evolution on planet Earth in the form of you today might be capable of. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Suffering and discomfort are far more widespread and pervasive than many of us previously thought in all of our lives and in the culture that we share. In response, we need to learn how to turn towards and embrace our difficult emotional experiences and make small, self-honoring shifts that turn out to be quite meaningful over time shifts that enable us to be closer to our true selves and even find our way back to a sense of innocence, awe, and joy today and every day. In Rachel Macy Stafford's new book, Soul Shift, she shares small actionable steps that make a difference even when life gets hard. You can learn more about the book Soul Shift and also the audio series, Soul Shift Sessions at SoundsTrue.com. At one point towards the beginning, you talk about tuning into something, inhabiting your body, and finding something pleasurable in the in yeah, your body experience, yeah. even when you're suffering from a lot of pain. And I wonder, do you advise people to alternate between paying attention to what they're naming pain and something that they find is pleasurable? And does that does that start to shift something if we go in between those two experiences? Yeah, because when you a lot of the time we don't even tune into the pleasant. We just we're into the narrative of 
if it's pleasant, I want more of it, right? How long is this going to last? So often you can be pessimistic even about the pleasant, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a, you know, whatever it's like, this is not going to last. So everybody's into impermanence when it comes to my concern about the pleasant not lasting. But if you shift to the unpleasant, everybody's into total permanence. This is going to last forever. It's killing me. It's ruined my entire life. I'll never be able to do what I, you know, really wanted to do. And both of those are just 100% wrong. They're just like wrong. Uh, it's just thoughts. They're just uh, secretions of the thinking mind. And when you learn how to, as we said at the beginning, rest in awareness, then you, you learn that you have another perspective. There's nothing wrong with thinking. I mean, think is phenomenal. But when it runs out of control and you can't get to sleep or whatever it is, then it's really helpful to know, hey, there's another way to be in the moment, to be in your body, to be underneath the waves of your self-narrative about how bad things are <clears throat> one way or another. And that's liberative. That is freedom right in the moment. Not just freedom from pain and from suffering, but it's freedom from all of the ways in which we uh, don't honor our own intrinsic beauty as human beings. And I'm not talking about ego or self-inflationary, you know, sort of self-congratulations. I'm talking about just being who you really, 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 really are. And that seems to me to be something that we're all starving for, if not dying for, because we feel like circumstances or fate or whatever it is has constrained us in certain ways. And why meditation is called liberative, why mindfulness is, you know, the Buddha himself said it was like the direct path to liberation. And why do they talk about it as liberation? Because we're liberating ourselves from the delusion of those not big enough self-narratives. And not just about self, not just about me, but about we. It's like we, we're not seeing each other. We're not really, and that's why, you know, there's, we could use a little bit more kindness and compassion, not just towards others, but towards ourselves, but very much towards others. And not just have it be kind of circumstance, be conscious of it. So of course, you know, there's a lot of love in all of our lives, but if we're not conscious of it, if we're not aware of it, then we take that stuff for granted. And then we just feature on the marquee my pain, my suffering, my uh, lack of uh, fulfillment in my life, and nobody can help me. And of course, you go out and get as much help as you can from all the specialists in the world. But at a certain point, they're going to say to you, you know, I mean, we may be specialists, but we're not gods. We're not miracle workers there's, you're going to have to learn to live with this. They say that every single day in medicine, but that's the end of the story. They don't say, and this is how you go about that learning trajectory. And that's what the book is. That's what MBSR is. And it's no big deal. I mean, it's like, this is like, you know, it's like completely um, obvious in a certain 
in a certain way that we sell ourselves short and then we blame everybody else for it. And what this is saying, like, no, don't inflate yourself. Don't make yourself into like the greatest thing to walk the planet Earth since, you know, slice rye bread or whatever, but, uh, but to mix metaphors, but, but don't sell yourself short. And that means, well, then maybe you don't know who you are. Maybe you need to investigate who you are. Maybe those stories you've been telling yourself about your childhood or your parents or your f successes or f your failures, maybe it's not the whole story. You ask this great investigating this question. You, by the way, it, it, <laughs> the way it is, speaking. John, of course. It's making no, a lot of sense. It, it's and... very important to me to be able to communicate something that at a certain point, like words just don't do it. The words are like fingers, you know, as they say in the Zen tradition. Don't mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon. And all I'm doing is speaking words. And the only reason I'm speaking words, and of course, I know that you know all this stuff and you practice this stuff, but the people who are listening to this to one degree or another, is very important to understand that what we're talking about is not some abstraction. And we're not actually even selling anything. We're not, it's not a product, even though it can take a form of a book or something like that. What we're, what we're offering or extending is the possibility for you to connect with you in the most profound ways while you have the chance. And it will be different in a certain way for everybody. So we're not saying what the outcomes will be or even the pathway. We're sort of just giving you the roadmap. And then it's like a big territory so you can take whatever paths you like. You are making a lot of sense, John, and the book and the audio series, Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief, both are invitations for people to engage and explore deeply themselves. And I wanted to bring forward and have you comment on one of the questions that you put out for the reader to explore. And you write, is my awareness of the pain in pain? Is my awareness of the pain in pain? And I thought this is really, really essential question yeah. that the book puts forward because, you know, even as I was describing to you, and I've suffered a lot from uh, chronic pain. So it's not like I don't know this territory. I've come up with uh, ways of uh, working with myself. I hear you. And, and that's true for me as well at certain points in my life. Uh -huh. Would you tell us some? about that and then also go into this question is my awareness of the pain in pain well let's start with that uh because it's it's a very weird question in a way and it's meant to be weird because when something is sort of doesn't go over all that smoothly then it has the potential to actually stop you or like a little um jarring wake-up call you know is my awareness so Let's say I'm in, I'm experiencing a lot of pain in my lower back. Okay. And I'm sure almost everybody who's listening to this has had that kind of experience. You know, I mean, we're talking like really, 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 you know, it's killing me. We'll say things like it's killing me. I mean, I remember once just hitting my thumb full on with a hammer. And, and then I had the thought, 
after you know, <laughs> I let out the loudest howl I've probably ever let out to actually zero in on the thumb and just feel the pyrotechnics of the aftermath of that whack. And you know, it was like wild, you know, there's a whole universe of sensation in there. And then there's the awareness, or sometimes I like to use the present participle, I invent words like awareness sing, there's no verb for awareness, but why not? We're awarenessing that sensory explosion in the thumb or wherever. And then you can ask yourself, you can investigate, it's not like, let me think about that. You can just directly know in the moment, is my awareness of what's going on in my thumb in pain or suffering? And I don't want to give away the ending, but the fact is that, you know, for almost everybody, you come to realize that your awareness is a whole other dimension to inhabit and that it may not be in pain, even though you're dealing with all this sensory stuff. And it's not dissociative, by the way, it's not like, oh, we're going to just dissociate from the body, which would be pathological. But it's almost like more associative, it's like befriending this new dimension that we never get pointed out to us in school. And I'm using the word pointing pointed out, because that's actually a, a technical term in Tibetan meditation practice of pointing out certain features of the landscape of meditative awareness. And so that you can explore and experiment like in a laboratory for yourself is my awareness of the pain in pain. You can do it with anxiety is my awareness of my anxiety anxious. If it's not, well, you have a whole other degree of freedom to work with. And, and you know, when you're really anxious, how is it in the body when you're anxious? How is it in the chest? How is it in the belly? How is it in the back? How is it in the jaw, the shoulders? And everybody who's on this call knows exactly how it is because we've all had that experience. It's like a complete contraction. Okay. But um, the awareness doesn't contract. The awareness just holds the actuality of it, and it's like a refuge. It's out of the wind. Yes, all that stuff's still going on. Yes, I did hit my thumb with the hammer. But there's just more to that moment and the following moment and the following moment that you can actually surf on. You can ride the wave of it. And everybody with chronic pain will tell you it comes and goes. It like way has waves, you know. Sometimes it may be never great, but sometimes it's a lot worse than it is at other times. So moment by moment, you can actually surf on the waves of your own experience and the surfboard. I've never said this before, but it may be, um, you know, overextending the metaphor, but the, the surfboard with you on it is actually awareness. And you can inhabit that space in a way that in that moment, you're already free. It's not like you have to, you know, meditate for 50 years, and then maybe you'll get enlightened. You know, the freedom, if it's worth anything, it's only valuable now. 
And if you apprehend it, then that's a realization. That's a profound realization that you're not who you think you are. There's so much more to this. And that while we think of ourselves often as our CV or our story, my narrative, the story of me, the awareness doesn't have a story. And it's not like it will get better in the future. It's always just as reliable. It's like your ally, your best friend, your, your refuge. And this has nothing to do with being Buddhist or Buddhism. It has, but it has everything to do with Dharma, what the Buddha taught and embodied and invited the community of humans to see for yourself, like not take anybody's word for any of this stuff, or even now don't read the scientific papers and believe everything that they say. No, you got to try it for yourself. And the book to come back to the book is really meant to be as user friendly a way as you and me and and some of your wonderful colleagues, it sounds true. I mean, really tried to make the type and the size of the type and the feel of the pages and the imagery and and uh, the colors of the of the type and so forth, that the entire thing is actually a kind of experience of intimacy, not with the book, intimacy with yourself, that the book is kind of catalyzing. And I hope that people relate to it that way, because, you know, that's what that's what it is. The book is a friend. It's a friend. Yeah, it is a friend. It really is. Okay, now I'm going to ask you a question here as my friend, and I'm going to go out a little bit. We've known Uh, each other for a very long time. I love you. Go out a little bit on the limb based on what's happening for me in my inner experience as I'm exploring this question of awareness and what's arising, the contents, the the searing, red, difficult feelings. Awareness, not in pain at all, just spacious, open, accepting. But what I'm noticing is it's almost like there are two things going on when I tune into that awareness and then the content of the experience. And at a certain moment, it collapsed into one thing happening. And that was very interesting to me. How would you describe the collapse? I don't know. It was, I was like, wait, there aren't two things. There's just one kind of interesting arising. Oh my God, this is kind of blowing my mind. And I think I have to ask John about it. There you go. You see, but you don't need to ask me because, uh, that's what meditation is about. It's actually the discovering a kind of integrative uh, unity within diversity on every level, from the subatomic to the molecular to the cellular to the organ to the organ systems to the, you know, all of that, and then into humanity, into society, into government, into nations, into, you know, the the global uh, environment and uh, yeah, it's an experience of the unity and diversity that your uniqueness is an important part of it. But it's equally important that you're just like everybody else. And there's something about that that's so wonderful, that that's where the compassion just springs out, like, because you're experiencing what I call interconnectedness. You can't practice mindfulness without almost 
instantly realizing everything is connected to everything else. And, you know, and, you know, we take so much for granted, like just that we breathe in the air. You know, you say, hey, I mean, if I'm in a room with a thousand people, I haven't been in a room with a thousand people in a very long time, but I used to ask them people, hey, just let me ask you one question. How many of you are breathing? And, you know, a thousand hands will go up. And of course, we conventionally say I'm breathing. But the fact is that if it were up to you to be breathing, you would have died ages ago. You got distracted, got a text, an email, you know, some kind of problem arose or you got into a pain condition and uh, you lost track of, you know, breathing and, and you died. Uh, but no, the 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 organism the brain stem and the phrenic nerve and the diaphragm don't let you have that level of control yeah you can hold your breath for a while but you can't commit suicide by holding your breath so there's a certain kind of way in which we're so as i was saying we're so much more beautiful and complex and interconnected than than we tend to realize or even learn in school until recently. Now they're teaching this kind of stuff in school. You know, a lot of schools are teaching mindfulness. Uh, but then that's where compassion arises. So you get compassion for, I'm not the only person with chronic pain on the planet. Maybe we can learn from each other. I mean, when we run an MBSR classroom. We go way, way beyond chronic pain because we take people with every conceivable medical diagnosis. And we do something with them that in medicine would be considered insanity, the heart of insanity, maybe even malpractice. You know, after all the scientific development of medicine to, to understand diseases and what differentiates one disease from another and the mechanisms underlying the disease and everything else, and then developing drugs and surgery that are specific for the specific thing that you're dealing with. We take everybody, no matter what their diagnosis is, and put them in the same room. And we focus on what's right with them rather than what's wrong with them. And it turns out to be really, I mean, in some ways, a revolutionary, but totally commonsensical way of uh, working with people, because then they'll look around the room, because everybody gets to say why they're there, you know, if they want to. And when you hear why other people are there, it puts your pain or your diagnosis, whatever it is, in a whole different perspective, because invariably in a room with, say, 20, 30 people, when we were, you know, we do it in person in the room, you never even gave any thought that the body could actually do what Mrs. So-and-so just said she's experiencing, or her social situation for that matter, or whatever it is. It's like pain and suffering come in an infinite number of different packages. And then all of a sudden you realize, maybe I'm okay with my own circumstance. I certainly don't want to be way that person is and that's kind of also liberative because it says okay here's a place to stand i can stand with the actuality of things as they are and then it's like and in this timeless moment we call now which is the only moment we're ever alive the only moment we can take breath and then the question comes up well now what exactly now what and the what is like Questioning, investigate. How does it feel in my thumb if I 
hit myself with the hammer or if I've been suffering from back pain for, you know, on the average of people who come to the stress reduction clinic from when they're, they have an eight year history on average of chronicity of low back pain and multiple surgeries and stuff like that. Headaches, jaw pain, you know, just you name it. And this was kind of like the last resort. And people would say when we told them what the program was about and we never force anybody to do, we invite them. They have to sign up and we tell them it's hard. It's a discipline. You got to practice. And we don't care if you like the practice. You just have to do it. At the end of the eight weeks, you can tell us whether it was full of it or not. But when your mind tells you this is full of it, I'm sick and tired of lying on my back and doing a body scan. And John has no idea how much I'm in pain and everything else. They say, yeah, no matter what the mind comes up with, we don't care. You, you, you know, if you don't sign up for the eight weeks, you can't come for one week and then quit. You know, we won't let you you know, sort of have a sampler. Do I like mindfulness? No, no, you don't have to like it. You just have to do it. And at the end of the eight weeks, come back and tell us if it was full of it or not. But in the meantime, just practice and take that energy of anger or resentment or frustration or, you know, doubt and take all those energies and put them into the present moment in practice and then report back. And of course, you can call us anytime during the eight weeks. So we're willing to be completely present for people. But then the flip side of that is, are you willing to be completely present for yourself with things exactly as they are, not the way you would like them to be if we surgically could just magically cut out your pain and restore you to the way you were before or you know, and of course, there's no end to it. People, I, I just wish I was 20 years younger, you know, that would solve all my problems. Well, <laughs> lots of luck. One final question for you, John, when you were describing the evolutionary history that we've come from, you said, and there's a promise, there's some kind of promise in us as humans and are we going to realize that promise will we you know get diverted into distraction in the digital world or we will we realize the promise of mm. this what does that mean to you what what would it look like it's a good question and i'm not sure i've ever used the word promise before uh i mean it as potentiality as a possibility that there's something about human awareness and human compassion and you can see it in all the people that uh, we classically recognize as, in some sense, transcended a small view of self, whether it's the Dalai Lama or Ramana Maharshi or, you know, whoever it might be, you know, where they're just living in a domain of wisdom, as so many of the, you know, Tibetan uh, teachers, Dilgo Kenze Rinpoche and so forth. And, and But they're all also ordinary human beings. They've just befriended their minds and in some sense, not just trained, but tamed their minds so that they're not prisoners of the sort of selfing impulse to contract around the story of me. And this is a human um, inheritance. We're all capable of this. Just the way, you know, we're all capable of learning. 
And MBSR is like a course. It's it's in the book is a course in a certain way. It's like, you know, you go through it from one end to the other, only there's really no end, even though the course ends for eight weeks. But we like to say the eight week is the rest of your life. The eighth week is the rest of your life. But, you know, uh, why do we take courses? Why do we, you know, we take courses to learn something, right? Maybe there's something more I could learn before I die. Uh, probably the people who love you the most are constantly telling you that, yeah, there are a lot of things that you could probably learn that we wish you would already, <laughs> uh, if you know what I mean, whether it's parents or children or whatever, or friends, uh, when they're really honest. Of course, we're all like, you know, on the growth curve. And that's exactly what happens when you learn, go to school, you learn, and out of the learning, you grow. And out of the growing, you learn how to come to terms with things as they are, which is my working definition of healing. Doesn't mean eradicating the pain. Although when you practice in this way, a lot of people report their pain goes away. Independent of diagnosis, by the way, which blew my mind when I saw it back in the uh, early 80s. It's like, it doesn't matter what they come with, they're all benefiting. That's why it was okay to mix all those diagnoses together because we're focusing on what's right with people. And we did notice that everybody who comes into the program, even if they have to be wheeled in on a stretcher, they're breathing, they have a body. Great place to start, first foundation of mindfulness. And then you also have likes and dislikes, second foundation of mindfulness. And it just goes on with thinking and emotions and the third foundation of mindfulness. And then there's like, awareness, the dhar dharmas. And um, that's a territory where we just haven't, in our culture, had that kind of systematic education that's carried us that far. But so learning to growing, growing to healing, and what about healing? Coming to terms with things as they are? That's transformative. That's transfiguring. Because all of a sudden, you're the same person you always were, and you're not. And you may not even recognize it. A lot of people will say, say to us, tell us, you know, people ask me, well, what's going on with you? I mean, you seem really different to me. You know, they, other people will notice you're not so self-centered. You're not so strung out. You're not so trig hair trigger, you know, reactive to this or that. You seem a little bit cooler, a little bit more relaxed, less stressed and stuff like that. And often people, other people notice it before you do. And we're not meditating to get that way. We're meditating to realize that we're already that way. And we just keep getting in our own way, which pre prevents it from uh, flowering. As always, John, I love talking with you. Thank well, you so much. Right back at you. And uh, I, I'm very honored to uh, be able to do this. We're not seeing the people who are tuning in, whether they're tuning in in real time while we're having this conversation, or we'll tune in later. But if I could just say a word to all of those people, I want you to know that this conversation, and Tammy too, wants you to know that this conversation is really um, an invitation for you to befriend yourself and to, and to recognize that there may be aspects of your own capabilities, possibilities, potential 
that are really untapped. And when you tap them through these meditative practices in whatever ways you care to, uh, it's like drilling down into the earth and coming up with natural resources, you know, but these are non-polluting, ecologically friendly natural resources in your own humanity, right down to the atomic level, you know, of your universe body. You've been listening to John Kabat-Zinn. He's the author of a new book with Sounds True. It's called Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief. Thanks everyone for being with us. Sounds True, waking up the world. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after the show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.